We're in a study in the, in the book of Acts. We've been there for several weeks now. And we'll, we'll continue on for a couple of more weeks before we come to our, our marriage and sacred seminar conferences coming up. But I want us to continue right on in the next chapter, right where we're, right where we've been heading for a while. But I said something last week that I don't want you to, don't want you to miss. It, it's one of those that it's, I don't know how profound it is as much as it just is truth. And that is that if the church ever ceases to be a movement, we will become just a sterile religion. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a, a religion. Uh, you might consider this a religion, but I'm hoping that this is going to be a distinguishing mark about us, that we're not just another religion out there that you go try out and you bow down every now and then, tip your hat to every now and then. I hope that we truly are a movement of God. And we've been talking about that. And I think we see that even in the scriptures, because I don't think I was quite descriptive enough when I said sterile religion. I think actually I should have used the word vomit. Uh, and that's not my, my word. I didn't choose vomit. Jesus chose vomit. Whenever he talked about the church at Laodicea, that was once a movement that became a sterile, lukewarm, tepid uh, faith that was out there. And Jesus said quite clearly that, he said, so because you are lukewarm, the Revelation 3.16, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. See, what we're about here is hopefully not just a Sunday service where you come set, soak, and sour, and that's all there is to it. Hopefully there's a movement. Hopefully there's a fire. Hopefully that each week there's something that's fanned inside of you that you're going to burn a little brighter next week. You're going to go a little further next week because of this experience and because of the way you've been challenged in God's Word. Again, if you've been with us, we've, we've been in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and we've seen... A church come alive. We've seen it from nothing to something to, to something that's changing the city of Jerusalem. We read last week in chapter 5 where the streets of Jerusalem have been filled with the message of Jesus. It's a powerful thing. We've, we find examples of them being gracious in their giving, literally selling their lands and giving their lands and the proceeds away. They were a very generous group of people. If there was a need, they stepped up. They were devoting themselves daily to being in the temple, to being in people's homes. There is something about this early church that we've been looking at it at a macro level. Here's the church. Here's the, the masses of the people, the, the, the 3,000, the 5,000. Then we go to the multitude last week. But this week, I want to go to the micro. I want to zero in, not on Peter or John. We've kind of skipped across them a little bit. But I want to zero in on a character, on a person. And I want to peel back the layers of this movement of God. And I want to say, what made up this movement? And I do not believe that he's an anomaly. I do not believe that this guy is just a rare cut out. out. I do think he is a pace setter in the movement. I do think he's a leader of the movement. But I think that there's something that we need to learn as we drill down in our own lives. That what we might call radical, God calls normal or biblical. While we might call crazy, ridiculous things, doing things like taking your kids out of school and going to a, a wild jungles of the, uh, around the world, you know, that may seem radical, but God calls that obedience. And what we need to understand is maybe a new paradigm of what it means to be a real disciple of Christ. Because for, for us, we take a very, a very emasculated, a very 
a very weak, a very sterile kind of approach, I'm afraid, in our, in our, in our Christianity, when what he really wants is radical, untamed, extreme, and courageous. I read a book, a book a few years ago called Untamed. That was the title of it. By a husband-wife combination, Alan and Deborah Hirsch. And this is what they said about radical disciples. They said, to be truly radical disciple does require a relentless evaluation of life's priorities and concerns to ensure that we are not adopting values that subvert the very life and the message we are called to live out. That we will do, in, as that statement says, we will be radical disciples with relentless evaluation of life's priorities and what consumes us. That is the beginning of what it means to be what we might call an untamed, courageous, extreme, radical disciple. But what we see in the New Testament is that is what leads a movement. And if we're going to be a movement, we can't just look at the big institution, Grace Point Church. We must look at the individual people who make up Grace Point Church. And we must say, I want to be one of these movement leaders. I want to be like this guy that I'm going to speak of. There's, he's only mentioned two times in, or in two chapters in all the Bible. So we're not talking about Paul or John or any of these major players. We're talking about a guy named Stephen. Didn't even take up much of the passage. Wasn't one of the early disciples. Didn't walk with Jesus that we know of. But he is, in Acts chapter 6, becomes one of the leaders in the church when they are needing more and more leadership to step into place. Many people kind of see it as the first set of deacons in the church in Acts chapter 6 in the early chapter where it talks about these six people that they chose, they picked out, they chose... That were fully devoted followers. But when you dive into them, you see an element that's untamed. You see another element that's a little bit extreme. You see another element that's a little bit courageous. And that's what I want to lead us to today. So really looking at those three concepts of being extreme, of, of being untamed, of being courageous. Because that's what's going to make up the radical normal of Christianity. And when I say the radical normal, it's not the normal of our day and age, but it is the normal of this book that I hold and you hold. See, we don't need more 21st century Christians. we got plenty of them. We need more 1st century Christians in the 21st century. We need to be thinking about what did Stephen, how did he live his life, and how can I emulate that? Because as I read a, a number of years ago in a book called In Name Only, Read about a, about some believers, Stark and Cloaks, who classified churches and Christians into predominant categories of people. That really, what 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 we have the largest percentage of Christians in America are not what we might see as radical followers, but more we're more notional or nominal, at best. Notional is that idea that, hey, I, I fill out a survey, I ask, I'm ask a questionnaire, are you Muslim, are you Christian, are you Buddhist, or whatever. If anything, I'm going to tick that I am, I'm a Christian. You grew up in a Christian home, you went to church at some point in your life, you went through some religious ceremony at some point in your life, so therefore you must be Christian, right? You're born in America, you're Christian, right? I mean, America is a Christian nation, we say, so therefore I must be Christian. 
That's notional. But there's really another category. It's maybe one step further in there, and that's the nominal category. You've heard me say this before, so this is, this is worth repeating. It's worth zeroing in on to kind of classify yourself. And the nominals are those who, yes, they truly are going to church. They truly are wanting to follow Jesus to some degree. They're nominal about it. They're not really going to be radical about it. They're not going to be untamed, courageous. They're not going to be extreme about really anything. You ask them to go somewhere around the world. You ask them to serve somewhere within the church. They're going to have more excuses than, 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 than anybody else. But they still love the idea of coming to church. They love a good band. They love a good message. But really, in the end of the day, they're not going to plan on changing one iota of how they live in relationship with people. They're not going to, they have no intentions of changing the way they do business. They have no intentions of stopping cheating on exams or relationships. They really don't have any intentions of changing. That is not Christianity. That may be the norm. And that's why I'm wanting to elevate this, that if we're going to be a movement that's going to go to the distance, that's going to make the impact, that's going to go to the ends of the earth, we've got to be made up of not just people sitting in seats, but we've got to be made up of people that are radical about their faith. It may seem radical, but they're really just normal. Normal Christians, normal Christ followers. This guy that I speak of is Stephen. Again, I mentioned he's only two times in Scripture or two chapters in Scripture. But yet, Peter Wagner said in his book, Spreading the Fire, he said, Stephen is unquestionably one of the most important figures in the history of the Christian movement. And yet most of us, I won't ask for a show of hands, know nothing about Stephen. But yet he's one of the most important figures in the history of the Christian movement. He's mentioned in just two chapters of Scripture. He's one of the first deacons in the church but he's also the very first martyr in the church. A person who was willing to give up his life. He didn't seek martyrdom. He didn't seek death. But it came seeking him. And as it sought him, he did not cow, uh, cow away from it. He did not turn away. He did not get weak in the knees. He stood up and he allowed it to come of him. The first five chapters, chap, chapters, uh, chapters of, of Acts, you find the gospel spreading throughout Jerusalem. From chapter 6 and following it all the way to chapter 12, you find the gospel is now spreading into Judea and Samaria. So what we see here is the continuation of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And so when you come to chapter 6 where we're at today, you find that it may be as many as several years removed from the day of Pentecost. We don't know exactly the timeline of it, but we now are seeing in chapter 6 that there are now Hellenistic Jews. Up until this point, there were only Messianic Jews, those who were born Jewish but became Christ followers. Now you're seeing Greeks. Now you're seeing people beyond the Jewish culture coming to know Christ. And now we find Stephen standing not just before the Sanhedrin. Those are the ones who Peter and John had to deal with. But now we find Stephen standing before the Pharisees. And we're going to be introduced to a man named Saul. It won't be the last time we hear about Saul. Sadly, we won't be able to finish the entire book of Acts. But you'll find that Saul later on becomes Paul. And Paul becomes a great movement leader. 
Similar in nature to Stephen. But this man Saul, before he becomes a believer, is a very young man. And in this passage, you find that he is the very one who oversees the martyrdom of the very first Christian in the faith. So, is Stephen extreme? Is he radical? Is he extreme? Is he untamed? Is he, is he kind of crazy in that kind of commitment? <laughs> yes and no. Depends on how you measure it. But I want to measure him today in some snapshots, if you will. But let's look at him today from Scripture. And let's look at, uh, uh, at Acts chapter 5. Uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 6, verse 5. I want to look there. And I want to kind of give you a little bit of an introduction uh, into Stephen uh, from, from the Scriptures. I'm going to read uh, to verse 7. It says, Stephen, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's several things that we're going to list about Stephen here that I don't even have time to go back and discuss. But now let's skip on down and let's go on down to verse Seven And it says, And the word of God continued to increase in the number, and disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Now that had to be a burr in their saddle. Because now not only are you having all of Jerusalem being transformed, but now you're even having the priest in the temple becoming followers of Christ. This is a game changer. And again, Stephen is right in on this movement. He is right a part of this. And so the very next words are this, and Stephen, full of grace and power. So we've seen in so far, Stephen is full of faith. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen is full of grace. Stephen is full of power. I'm only going to deal with half of those. Do your own study and understand what it means to be full of power. Do your own study and read what it means to be full of faith. This Stephen guy is setting a bar for you and me. In our own lives. Let's keep reading. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue uh, of the freemen, which were formerly slaves, as they were called, the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and, um, and those from Sicilia uh, and Asia, and rose up and disputed Stephen. And they could not withstand his wisdom, but they could not withstand his So you see now there's an avalanche of people. There's a whole another group of people that are sliding in and that are anteing up the persecution of Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit in which he was speaking. When they secretly in, instigated men who said, now notice that, they're now going to start brewing up a lie against Stephen. We, we, that's the way people are. If the truth doesn't convict, then let's just create a lie. That's what they did with Jesus. Now they're doing it with Stephen. And so we have heard this man speak blasphemous words against Moses and, and God, and, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon them and they seized him and they brought him before the council and they, they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and, and the law. So now they're just now creating their story. They're creating their momentum to kind of convict this man, Stephen. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses delivered to us. What's Stephen's response? And he gazing at him, and, and, and gazing at him, all who sat on the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. 
I'm going to stop there. And I want us to start peeling back some layers of Stephen and start taking some snapshot looks, if you will, and say, am I like Stephen? Am I going to be a person who's going to rise up and stand up and, and, and really man up and be like a Stephen? Or am I going to be the notional novels of, of, of the American culture? And if we're going to be a movement, we're going to have to move past the norm. We're going to have to move to the radical. And here's one of the things about the radical is that they're going to live in, with an untamed spirit. We like to emasculate things, tame things, bring things into control, into our control. Let me ask you a question. What was the last... Don't answer this out loud. When was the last time you were intoxicated? Don't answer that out loud, okay? If you do, it's your, your own choosing. When was the last time you lost all control of your thought processes? When was the last time you didn't have all your fine motor skills? When was the last time you didn't have all your faculties? You were not in control of yourself because you were intoxicated. I got a verse for you. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Do not be drunk with wine. That's a prohibition against alcohol in excess. Okay? We'll talk about some other day alcohol as a whole, but I'll tell you right now, alcohol in excess is wrong. Which will ruin you, it says in the Bible, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, what, an, what a strange contrast to talk about. Don't be drunk with wine and then turn right around. And he says, be filled with the Spirit. Until you peel back that verse and you really understand what he's doing there. He's kind of switching things up. He's kind of, uh, he's doing a word picture. He's doing a comparison contrast here where he's, he's saying, listen, you, you all know what it's like to be drunk. And you all know what it's like for when you get drunk, it's going to ruin your life. It's going to ruin your marriage. It's going to ruin your reputation. It's going to ruin a lot, of, a lot of things. It's going to mess a lot of things up. So if you're going to choose to be drunk, be drunk on the Spirit of God. That's literally what he's trying to convey here. Don't be drunk with wine, but if you're going to get drunk with anything, get drunk, be filled with, be consumed by the Spirit of God. Now here's my own little amplified paraphrase version of this. Don't be drunk on the cheap stuff. Stupid. I added that part. It will ruin you. Be constantly drunk on God's Spirit and it will radicalize you. It will change you. You will be different. Just as if your faculties and your, and your thought processes you don't have complete control of when you are intoxicated, so when you are intoxicated with the Spirit of God, you are no longer in full control of yourself. Now, the Spirit of God is controlling you. Now, you're not crazy. You're not, you're, you're, you're not uncontrolled in that sense where you no longer can have control. You now are giving yourself over to full control of the Spirit of God inside of you. Well, let's come back to Stephen. Stephen was this kind of man. You find him multiple times in the writings. You find in chapter 6, verse 5 of, of Acts, you find Stephen was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 6, verse 10, you find that they could not withstand the Spirit with which he was speaking. 
chapter 7, verse 55, it says that he was full of the Holy Spirit. There was something about Stephen, and Stephen wasn't the casual, tepid, normal. He wasn't the lukewarm Christian. He was consumed. He was intoxicated with the Spirit of God. And God does amazing work when His Spirit is the one controlling our spirit. And what does it mean? We don't have time to to pull back all of this. There's a whole study on what it means to be filled with the Spirit. But I can give you a real quick reference. Go to Galatians in your own time. Read chapter 5 in your own time. And you'll find find greater love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control are what it means to be consumed and controlled by the Spirit of God. You are bearing His fruit. It's changing your life. It's changing the way you live your life. One of my heroes was Jim Elliott. Never met him. He was a martyr for the Christian faith long before I ever knew him. But he made this statement. So many missionaries intent on doing something forget that his main work is to make something of them. Now, this is a guy who, along with Nate Saint and a couple other guys and their families, moved among the Wadani Indians of Ecuador. And they lived, they invested their life, and ultimately gave their life among the Wadani. And at that point, there were zero believers. Now, we're talking 50s, 60s, 1950s, 1960s. Zero believers among the Wadani. This morning, I got on Joshua Project, and I found that 40% of the Wadanis are now followers of Christ. It was a movement that God would end up using people like Jim Elliott to go down and and then people that would follow and that would push through the cultural differences and they they would see change. But now I want you to understand what, what Elliott said. That he thought he was the missionary that was going to do this great work among the Wadani. And it didn't happen under his watch. And so much of us, we want to see God do a great work through us. But here's the point of Stephen and of Jim Elliot and of you and of me, and that God doesn't do His great work through us until He does His great work in us. Until He's done His great work in you, He will not do His great work through you. And the way He's going to do His great work in you is when you are consumed, controlled, intoxicated by the Spirit of God. Are you there? The second snapshot of a radical normal follower of Christ is there's an extreme depth of insight. An extreme depth of insight. When you come to life, I don't know about you, but it seems pretty foggy at times. It's blurry at times. I think a lot of people make pretty shallow decisions at times. We see our children even making decisions that we as as children or teenagers ourselves made and we just do our best. Listen, uh, teenagers, I promise you, the wisdom that your parents have came 90% because they were stupid like you're about to be stupid sometimes. So listen to their wisdom. You get a lot of wisdom through mistakes. But you don't have to live out of all the mistakes. There's something that happens when the Spirit of God is inside of you and He's filling you and you are seeking His insight because it gives you this this extreme sense of understanding, a, a deeper understanding. And you see it here whenever you look at Stephen. Here he had all of these different tribes from Asia and all over that were 
fighting against Stephen, arguing against Stephen, trying to nail Stephen down. And what do we find in this verse? One man standing up in front of all of them, verse 9 and 10, it says they were unable to stand up against the wisdom and the Spirit. The Spirit of God was filling him, intoxicating him with truth, changing the way he lived, untamed in his spirit, and at the same time giving him a a level of wisdom and insight into life that it was literally shutting the mouths of the people out there. And when I see people make decisions, when I see relationships come apart, I really believe when I see people put their character on the line on the job for a few bucks... I see somebody sacrifice a marriage of years for for a sensation of a moment. I think these people lack wisdom. They need more wisdom. And the radical follower of Christ will have a level of wisdom. What does wisdom do for you? It gives you a, a depth perception. That you're able to see things further beyond the present. Now, I'm literally having a difficulty this morning seeing probably 90% of you didn't even know. I'm not wearing glasses. I normally wear glasses. I need glasses for reading. I don't need glasses for distance. But my eyes are getting worse as I get older. And I'm needing glasses more and more. But I'm tired of losing my glasses on and on. I have one contact lens in right now. Um, And so I can barely read my notes. So most of this is just coming from my heart. But here's, here's, here's here's the point. When you have wisdom, there's a level of depth perception that you have that you don't have otherwise. This is what you're looking at. This is the option that you have. Can you see? These are the options that you have that are out there that are, this is your present reality. But when you have wisdom, you are able to see beyond your present emotional reality choices that you have, and you're able to see there is another reality that's out there. There's another deeper truth and you're not going to you're not going to make short term choices and sacrifice long term gain that comes through wisdom it gives you a depth perception that you will not get other places it gives you a clarity to the vision of your life again it's a bit blurry up here right now but it gives you a bit of clarity I, I i one of the hobbies i like to do our family likes to do is we like to go deep sea diving and we've We've been able to dive in some great places. And on my bucket list has been able to, to be able to dive the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. About three years ago, Caleb and I were able to go on a man trip to Australia. And a long story about that, won't go into that, but we were able to dive the Great Barrier Reef while we were there. And I can tell you about diving when you're diving 100 feet below the surface. What makes for a beautiful dive is great sunlight. Now, that may seem weird. You're below the surface. You don't need the sunlight. But there's something about having the right light above shining down into the waters in which, in the environments in which you are, that it brings out the colors that you're, you're, you're swimming in. The fish, the coral, all of that just pops when the sun above. Wisdom is not in our environment but it is able to shine down into our environment and bring greater clarity to our world. I I tell you, the people who do sacrifice a relationship, who do sacrifice 
their careers, who do sacrifice their integrity for a short-term gain. They're struggling with clarity. They're struggling with depth perception. Beautiful passage in Acts chapter 7. We're not even going to deal with it. It's the longest single discourse in the book of Acts where Stephen gives his defense before this council. But when you come to the very end of this event, you come to verse 54, right before Stephen is a martyr, and you find his response in verse 55 as these people are enraged. Verse 55 says, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, there it is again, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Now just imagine for just a moment. Here he is about to die. Steam's coming out of these religious leaders. He knows he's within a beating because that happened back in chapter 5. But now they're talking death. And now they're, they're getting their, their, their hands ready to pick up some stones and nail him between the, the head. This is a perfect time for Stephen to back out of his commitment. This is a perfect time for him to compromise a little bit. This is a perfect time for him to say, no, 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 no. you know what? I tell you what, I don't, don't pick up the stones. I just won't talk of Jesus anymore. But he doesn't. Why doesn't he do that? That right there. He saw past the short-term gain of a few more days on this earth and he gazed straight into heaven. And it was greater and more importance for him to please the one who reigns over it all than to please the religious leaders of that day. My friends, as you live out this world, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to want you to live for them, obey them, surrender to them, make them their, your little gods. But listen, you just need to take that down and you need to have the depth perception and the clarity to see beyond that. That's what wisdom does for you. It will give you an extreme vision that other people don't have. You find this with, with him. You find that he's untamed because the Spirit is controlling him. But you also find that he has a courageous grace about him. Courageous grace about Stephen and his, his circumstance. Grace is love in action. Grace is love manifested. It is... It, it ties together. It's not deserved. It is something that you receive because it's... Let me give you some... Just when you look at Stephen's circumstances and situations, we learn a lot about grace. One of the things you learn about grace when you look at Stephen's situation here is that grace teaches me how to give when others are taking. That's not something that comes real easily. To give when others are taking. That's what... That's what the, the world would not want us to, uh, to, to do. We would, we'd want to get even, even the score, and not let people give to us. But when you look at chapter 6, verse 8, and you, fi- you, you find that, that, again, he was full of grace, uh, and then you come down to chapter 7, verse 54. I know I'm skipping around a lot, but look, notice the anger of these people. Verse 54. And they heard these things, and they were enraged. Remember last week, two weeks ago, they were greatly annoyed. Last week, what did we read? They were filled with jealousy. This week, they are enraged and they grinded their teeth. It was literally affecting them physically. Commercial break. Let's talk about anger. Talked about it for the past three weeks, can't get past it. 
Anger has a way of brewing inside of us, flowing through us. We hold it down. We push it back. We don't want it to come out. Beware. Anger has a way of taking over. When you look at the opportunity of these men to be gracious, they weren't. When you see in Stephen an opportunity to be angry, he wasn't. Unresolved anger, here's a life principle for you. Unresolved anger will escalate, only escalates as it percolates inside of you, as it bubbles up inside of you. And so we have seen them go from greatly annoyed to to angry, or excuse me, to, to filled with jealousy. And now we're seeing them, them enraged. Now we're seeing their physical presence literally changing. They can't keep it in any longer. Their anger is great. But what do you see among Stephen? Stephen is still giving grace. He is not retaliating. He is not getting even. He is just hanging in there. And you find in verse 54, verse 57, that they stop listening to him. Verse 58, this young, aggressive young man named Saul steps on the scene. And in verse 60, they take action. Which brings me to the second lesson of grace. Grace enables you to forgive when others seek revenge. Grace, see, in this world, we want to get even. But what we see a radical follower of Christ doing, he gives grace. He doesn't get even. Verse 60, look at this. Wow, how in the world did he come up with this one? Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. Now, by the way, he's being pelted with stones right now. He's in the process of being unjustly offended. It's not like it happened yesterday and he got over it. He is literally in the process of being offended. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Why did he do that? How absurd can you get? God, get even with these people. God, give them what they deserve. They didn't give me a just trial. They made up stories about me. Why don't you get even, God? No, he said, God... Don't hold this against them. What did Jesus say when he was dying on the cross unjustly? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Here is something that will radicalize your life. Put down the model of forgiveness in the Christian circles of America. Take up biblical forgiveness where you literally forgive even while the offense is happening. We can talk all day long about how do you allow an offender to be forgiven. We're not going to have time to peel that apart. I don't have time to talk about the offenses that are still lingering in my own life from people that have offended me or the people that I've offended. I don't have time other than just looking at Stephen and let this be a focus of your, of your thought process. How can I forgive that person that I don't want to forgive? Now think about that one. Who in my life do I not want to forgive, but just merely reading this passage of Scripture tells me I should forgive? Looking at Stephen and trying to become like Stephen, a radical, normal follower of Christ. I don't know how many of you all saw Rick and Kay Warren's interview this past week. Rick and Kay Warren, great pastor, family. Uh, They were on CNN and they were interviewed on there. Uh, about what they have experienced when their son illegally 
purchased a gun and killed himself with it. What they went through, the anger that they went through because of the person who illegally sold their mentally challenged son a gun, preying on him, and he was going to kill himself. But it was an amazing interview. It's worth finding online and watching it again. But Rick Warren made this statement. He says, I have forgiven the person who's, who, who, who's done this, who sold the gun illegally to my mentally challenged son. He said, for three reasons. Because I have been forgiven much. Because, forgiveness makes, uh, because unforgiveness makes me miserable and because I need more forgiveness in the future. He understands that forgiveness is not based on what you do to me to make it right. Forgiveness is based on my heart forgiving you. Will I be willing to release those who have offended me? Will I be able to release those who have done wrong to me? I hope that as you look at this passage and you look at Stephen, you see a different kind of Christian. You see somebody who's under the control and under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. You see a different kind of Christian because you see a person who is, who is gracious with his life, courageously gracious with his life. You see a person who has an ability to see beyond and to see clearer than the average Joe. Do you have that level of wisdom? Are you going to be crazy? Are you going to be radical? Are you going to be untamed? Or are you just going to be the notional normal, the tepid Christians of our day?